Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in body work, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. Today's conversation is with Jim Pascucci, equine rolfer extraordinaire, certified advanced rolfer, crossfitter, and so much more. Besides being an incredibly intelligent and ingenuous person, Jim is also extremely funny, as you'll soon hear. Our talk today covers many areas of Jim's expertises. You'll learn about his path from engineering to horse and dog whisperer, and just maybe you'll laugh nearly as much as we seem to. The three of us are easy to get into long conversations, and we decided to hold off on the CrossFit conversation for another time, as we were already past our planned designated time. So stay tuned for that. And with all that, here's Jim Pescucci. I'm happy to have the three of us here together. Um, <laughs> it's nice. It's good to be surrounded by great people. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in the equine rolfing just from a couple of reasons. A, I have a great deal of respect for horses. They also terrify me. Um, I definitely believe there's that vibe that they feel on um i've been horsebacking horseback riding a few times and i'm i'm not comfortable and i I know i'm not i'm sure the horse is feeling it too so i'm curious about that just because also from having a a small role in teaching a couple of times having students come through specifically to rolf horses so i just that that transition of learning from learning on humans and then taking that. And I, I believe there's obviously another course that they take specific for horses, right? They don't have to. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Dr. Rolf didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the fallacy, right? I mean, who's, who's the, who's the thought leader? That's the I guess to my question. Well, so what what is it that got you into equine rolfing? Um, I think that the better question for me is what what got me into human rolfing? Because I, unlike, uh, I mean, so what Nikki was just saying of people coming in who wanted to specifically work with horses, um, I I came to the institute to to become a uh, to learn what rolfing was from from uh, I mean, I've already been rolfed by people, um, but my my objective was to work with horses because I was already a horse person. So it wasn't like I you know went to the Rolf Institute and then decided, oh, this is a good thing. Let me try and apply this with horses. I was specifically going to work with horses, and. <clears throat> What got me into the 
Rolf Institute was, um, you guys probably, I don't know how, how long, have, you don't need to tell me, but do you, are you familiar with Liz Gagini? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Liz Gagini was, was my rolfer at the time um, when, I, uh, when I went into the Institute, and she was pushing me to become a, to become a rolfer and to work with horses. I was, I was an engineering manager at the time, and uh, we had just moved up to Boulder from Colorado Springs, where I'd worked for Hewlett Packard. And I, I left Hewlett Packard on a, so I was a, a manager at Hewlett Packard. Susan was a manager at Hewlett Packard. And uh, I left HP on a buyout to go into vet school to become a veterinarian. And the problem was that the type of, of buyout that they offered to, to us, we had to sign up for it before I knew I was accepted into vet school. And as it turns out, um, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons I didn't get into vet school, but one of them was a typo. And so I didn't, I didn't get the residency points and vet school has a weird way when you're applying, you know, med schools, vet schools, you have to get so many points to be able to be able to get it accepted. And so I didn't get the residency points, but I didn't know that I wasn't going to be accepted into vet school. And I'd already had to do, told HP that I was going to be leaving. And so um, I took the buyout, which they made very attractive. Susan took the buyout. And when I took the buyout, they asked me if I'd stay for six more months, which was great because I was waiting to get into vet school. And um, I found out that I I didn't get accepted into vet school and I didn't have a job. And so, um, you know, being who we are, the – the best thing for me to do was for us to do was actually move up into the up and up north into the mountains for a while. So I spent uh, three months riding horses, and one day I was reading a newspaper, the Denver Post, and I saw a job posting and for a company that was starting up in Boulder. So I, I called and applied for the company to the company, got the job, blah blah. And so then I came to Boulder, and I had had a, I guess it was 1993. I was uh, involved in an endurance race in Fort Collins. There was a, a race around uh, Horsetooth Reservoir in that area. And that's what we call an elevator ride. So it was a 25-mile loop. And then if you at the end of the 25 miles, you could decide that you wanted to go another 25. So it was a 25 and a 50 mile um, race. And while I was, while I was there, uh, I had a really bad horse wreck. And so the only thing I remember is the last thing I remember was that there was a horse galloping up behind us. We were on our, our road going into um, the a ranger station. It had been raining the night before. There was a big puddle. And I was legging my horse over to go around the puddle. And I decided that I was going to drink drink water because we we're going to a water stop for the horses. And I wanted to have everything. I didn't want to be taking care of me at that time. I wanted to have the, my attention on the horse. And I heard a horse galloping up behind us, and I bumped the horse. You know, so I, I just 
with the reins. I just said to the horse, you know, don't, don't race, just stay, you know, stay where you are. And this horse had a 14 mile an hour trot. And so we were trotting, blah, blah, blah. The next thing I know, I'm talking to a doctor in the hospital and he's says to me, uh, and do you know where you are? And I said, yeah, I'm in Fort Collins. And he said, do you know, do you know why you're here? And I said, yeah, I'm racing my horse. And he's like, okay, um, do you know what happened? And I said, I won. Why am I in the hospital? <laughs> and he was like, okay, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be staying the night with us. So I had a closed head brain injury, uh, completely separated my acromial clavicular joint and broke two ribs on this side. So apparently I, I, I was knocked out when I came off the horse. And the way I think it happened is I was drinking out of my water bottle. When I heard the other horse coming, I checked my horse and he kicked at that horse. And when he kicked, it snapped my head back and it, it knocked me out. And so I, I'm pretty sure, you know, because I landed on my arm against my rib cage, and you know that's a very rare injury. You have to actually train to fall and do that, like football players have to train that way. Most of us are going to put our arm out right, and try and break the fall. And so I didn't have that, so I landed like this, separated my AC joint and broke the ribs, and it was really pretty, pretty wackadoodle. I had, you know, really bad. Um, short-term memory loss, blah, 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 continuing along. Liz Gagini is trying to get me to go into the Rolf Institute. And uh, when I got to work on Monday, the my boss, I said, you know, I just had this bad horse wreck. And he's like, you're, you know, you're key to the operations. You've got to come to work. And I was, I mean, it was so bad. And people say they, they've broken ribs. If you've never broken a rib, you don't know how painful it is. I mean, you can barely breathe. And I was walking down the hallway with Susan because I had a doctor's appointment. And I sneezed and I passed out in the hallway. I mean, so, you, you know, you're driving along if you're alone and you've got broken ribs and you feel like something's going to happen like that. And, you, you, you know, you freak out because sneezing and you pass out while you're driving, right? I mean, so anyway, so then I became pretty determined to not <clears throat> not stay in that in that position. And I determined that um, becoming a veterinarian was just not a good idea when you're, I mean, the starting salaries for vets back then were $20,000 a year. And I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't live on that. And so, um, Liz Gagini kept pushing me, pushing me. And there was a, an annual meeting up in Allen's Park, you know, by Estes Park. And she said, you know, why don't you come to the annual meeting of these of the Rolfers? Because there's going to be a demonstration of people working with horses. And so I went, um, went, watched Jan Sultan and Tessie Brungart work, work with this one horse. And uh, Tessie was living in Boulder at the time. And Jim Schulke was her, was the director of the Rolf Institute. And it was, she was living with Jim. And, uh, I said, you know, I'd like to see, have Tessie come over and work with my horse. And so she worked with him. He got hurt as well. And so she was working with him and I'd never seen the horse act the way he did while she was working with them. And it was one of those family things, you know, so, 
Tessie and her kids were there. Jim and his kids were there. You know, us and our child were there. And Jim Schalke, who was the director of the Institute, looks at me and says, you're hooked. You're going to become a rolfer. And I was, yeah, yeah, you're right. I am. And so that started me on the, on that path. So that was when 1994 I was certified. So, so when you first started your practice, did you just work with horses and then eventually worked on people? So while I was in the Institute, I mean, obviously, you know, we were all rolfers, so we know what the training is like. Um, in, in time that I went, we did auditing and practicing. We didn't do unit one, two, three. But you obviously didn't work with horses <laughs> during, during your rolf training. And so you have to become more familiar with, I mean, obviously, you're going to work with people. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty shy. People don't get that about me. But... Uh, being in a room with somebody um, it just wasn't, you know, friends of mine going, are you really sure you want to do this? <laughs> because I'm, I'm kind of a loner. And, but I turned, it turned out that I liked working with people. So my practice while I was in training, it took, uh, what, 16 weeks. So it was eight weeks of auditing, eight weeks of practicing, but it was, you know, split up over time. Um, in my notes, you'd see, you know, apply this to a horse, apply this to a horse, apply this to a horse. And I would go out and work, work with horses. So I, I wanted to, I developed my system of working with horses while I was in training. And then I would test it because I'm an engineer and you know, people, when you say to somebody, what do you, you know, you work with the horse, you rolf the horse. And, you know, what does that mean? How many, and they say, well, I, I do a 10 series. And I just like, from an engineering view, you go, really? What do you, you know, that's fine if you don't know what you're, you know, if you're not a rolfer and then, you know, talking to somebody. But if you're an engineer, you go, how do you do the second session? I mean, there's only, there's only four toes. <laughs> Right. And they're and they're in this hoof, right? So how, how do you work with the feet? Um, you know, so right off the bat, you say, well, oh, you probably don't, right? So let's throw that out. Okay, now we're down to nine, right? And then you, you know, what about breathing? Horses are pretty good at breathing. What you know, the first session we're going to open up the superficial fascia. That's three sessions, right? It's not, so so I started, excuse me, making changes to what other people said they were doing, and then I. Um, would go out and test it. So I, had, you know, I, I should round them up. They're on, probably on VHS. I'd have to get them on DVD. But this is the time when my, you know, our son's like two and three years old. He was like, yeah, he was three years old. So he's like, uh, <clears throat> like Rome. And Lion King. He's, yeah, there's videos of him singing Lion King while I'm running Susan's video. And I'm talking about what I'm looking for. And uh, it was a lot of fun because I, I knew a lot of horse people. And then to actually try and build the horse practice, um, I would invite Tessie to come out because she was living in Boulder and work with my horse and do demos. And then I'd see how, you know, how things went. But most of when I started my practice, when I started the practice, it was a mixture of horses and, and, and humans. So then, I started in Greeley. My human practice was Greeley and Boulder, so I had two practices. 
took me what 90 1997 i went into um advanced training with tom myers was the tom was the um anatomy instructor at the time and um that was a really good class i mean there was me well not that i made it good but it was jim asher was one of the one of the instructors uh ron thompson was the assistant i don't know if you guys know ron but he's he's a brilliant brilliant guy um tom myers was the anatomy instructor uh i think uh can't remember who was the uh, movement person, the functional part. Um, but Ron Murray was in the class. John Martin was in the class. Libby Eason was in the class. I mean, all people that we know, you know, have a lot of respect for now. Um, anyway, so I was in the class and I was the youngest rolfer in the class. Um, Jim Asher had actually specifically invited me to come take the class. And so I'd been rolfing for three years, but I was the oldest person. So chronologically, I was old, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> we were doing that first day, you know, circle thing of introducing yourself, and people were like, you know, I'm Ron Murray. I've been rolfing since rocks were young, and you know, blah blah blah. I'm John Martin, and you know, I'm an anatomy instructor at the institute. And I've been rolfing for seven years, or whatever. And I'm thinking, didn't you guys have to sign a contract that you're supposed to? Get? and do this do this training and so i'm going i'm embarrassed because i've been you know three years and i said well you know i'm jim pascucci and i i roll horses and tom did not like that and so he, he uh huh interesting why um there are a lot of people and they're still they're still out there who believed that, you know, and I, and I don't disagree with them that Dr. Rolf wanted to work with, um, bipeds. And so if you're going to use the term Rolfing, right. And in an application to horses or to anything other than a, <clears throat> than a human biped, you're, you're on, you're on kind of thin ice. And I, I totally agree with that. So if you put the, you know, the verb, rolfing in front of or you know the title um how did you figure out how to work with a quadruped you didn't get it through dr rolf and mm -hmm. so that's i own that and i call my work animal structural integration of course okay. i'm you know we're all we're all rolfers and that's what we're, we're saying here but, uh, I, but anyway I'm, so i am curious at some point later on to go more with that because i'm thinking about the line of gravity in a quadruped is very different than and a bipedal. Mm -hmm. I think we'll mm -hmm. get there in a bit. Yeah. Very different. Like four times <laughs> different. <laughs> well, when you were talking about the second hour, I was thinking the the front and the back are, you know, are still the, the feet versus the arms. And um I don't know enough about the uh the movement science behind horses uh galloping trotting or running or i don't know i'm not a i'm not a horse guy clearly uh i have yeah. ridden before and i enjoyed it but, but you've been on a horse before <laughs> been on a horse a few times yeah and camels um and another yeah um but yeah i'm sort of curious thinking about that which i hadn't really thought about until you started 
speaking about how to you know, bring that the 10 series into it. Which is yeah, interesting. So oh, sorry, I was thinking that you could apply it easily to a horse or an animal. I mean, I think with the horses, because there's horses, I mean, maybe dogs too, but like there, there's that certain species that there is that connection that you have. But when you were talking about it, especially from an engineer point of view, applying the principles, like, I mean, if you apply the raw principles, then I think you could easily transfer that to an animal, creating support, creating adaptability. Of course, you, that's, that's, you can, you know, you can do that for an automobile as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the, a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I well, think they're not like, living. But think of like Please. fifth hour. The, the function of a psoas and a horse is very different than the function of a psoas and a human being. Most definitely, most definitely. And so, I guess the you know the the point is that there were people who um, were taking a ten series and applying it to animals, and you know there were you know people who were talking about rolfing eagles <clears throat> and dolphins and, and there was a, and there was an angst, of, you know, within a, a number of people who were saying, you know, why are you denigrating what we do? And then, you know, not that Tom was saying that to me, but there was a, you know, it was a little bit for me, it was, you know, like I say, I'm shy. It's the first class. That's why I remember it. Right. And, you know, I was thinking, well, I'm the only guy here. I've only been working, you know, three years and all these other people have been out forever. And I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing. And um, this is the first class of uh, you know, the, the, the advanced training. And people were very curious that, you know, the, the classmates were very curious about working with animals. And I you know, did a demo with somebody's dog and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, uh, well, I am pretty metaphysical in my life, but I'm not, I don't apply it to my, to working with animals the same way. And so people would come up with these principles that didn't make it, they weren't engineering, they weren't physics, they weren't, you know, engineering for me, and it was a little bit difficult. To, but then one day, one night I said to Tom, I said, you, you know, you want to go out for a beer? Because it was getting a little bit, I mean, it was only only five days or four days that we were actually interacting. And we went for a beer and he said to me, uh, you know, tell me about what you do. You know, how, do, how does one, I remember him saying, so how does one Rolf a quadruped? And I just told him the five series that I had developed. And he was, you know, very Tom. And uh, he finished his beer and he he was done. We had, you know, I was done and that was it. We went to our separate ways and we had one more day of class. It was Friday. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, I just got to avoid all this quadruped stuff for, you know, one more, one more day and I'm golden. And as soon as I walked in, if, did you guys ever go to the old Institute? The, and the end of Canyon. Right. That's where I did my Canyon and Pearl. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I was. All right. So remember, you know, sort of where the kitchen was and the bathrooms, right? And everybody would congregate when they were going in the, in the big room. And um, I walk in the room and I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Ron Murray. 
who was asking me a question about, cause he was, he was, he had um, sled dogs, I think at the time. And he was asking me some question and I was like, God, don't let Tom come in. Let me just get through this thing without talking about animals. And here comes Tom and he says, uh, you know, I've had it up to here with people talking about raw thing quadrupeds. He goes, and I don't think that they know what they're doing. And he goes, until now. He goes, you have figured it out and you need to let the rest of us know about it. And so that's, you know, it was really generous of him and you need to write a book and teach. And so that was 97 and I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to teach. And so I developed a course and started offering it through the Rolf Institute. And it was only open to advanced Rolfers, but, and then 10 years after that, I wrote a book about it. And I refined the so the things that I told Tom that time, um, you know, in 1997 uh, were not not the things that I would tell him today. My five series is different than it was then. But so taking ten down to five, and then mix, you know, taking you know, one and two and three and four and five, and putting them around in different orders to see which is the best thing. How do you get the, how do, how do you get the horse to actually work best? How does that structure work? How does a quadruped structure work? And it took a while. And, and because I'm an engineer by training, um, I'm a raw for my training too, I guess. And I uh, ran a lot of experiments and kept a lot of notes and I'm shocked now because I'm, I'm shredding years and years of paper and I'll open up a piece of, you know, a bar napkin and I go, Oh, wow. This is where I figured this out. <laughs> so. so what are the results that you see when, when you structurally integrate a horse? I mean, it's not like the horse is going to come up and be like, Oh, I feel this pain. Right. Yeah. So that's the first thing you need to understand about working with animals is that you don't work with they're they're not going to call you i've yet to have a, a horse or a, or a dog call me on and make an appointment um so you're working with the human and there's a it's a little more it's like working with the parent and a child and so i don't i don't work a lot with children um in my rolfing practice but you, you know what i'm saying when i say that right? so you you're not gonna you don't have the customer is not the horse the recipient's the horse the customer is the person who called you and that's is really um important to be able to ascertain their understanding of what what they what do they want for their horse and how are they going to judge whether or not you've done it and then on on the other side is how are you not going to take advantage of them is what i would say being a you know a brooklyn kid um so you have somebody who's really loves their animal and they want something for them but they may not be able to see what they can um what they can get is that or what they got and so you so in to mitigate that, I started off with a, my first session has a, a money back guarantee for for animals, not for humans. Because I can, you know, I mean, we all do this, right? You, human stands up and you say, uh, "How do you feel?" And they tell you how they feel. So, what what is the you know the primary th therapist in Rolfing is gravity, 
Right. I mean, you have people who, how many, I mean, we, you know this, I don't have to preach to the choir here. Someone you're working with somebody on the first session and they, uh, you're, you think you're done and they've been receiving the work, receiving, 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 but they don't have a, they don't really have an, it's an idea of what, what happened. And then they get up off the table and if they don't fall over, and you do some back work on your bench, they get up off the table and you have them walk around and you see their, their, their structures start to change and they get those aha moments because right? now the therapist is actually showing up and that's gravity. So we take them out of gravity to work with them and then put them back into gravity and the therapist shows up and they say, I feel different and I, I start to adapt. And I mean, you can nod if you have that experience. <laughs> so that brings me just again, out of curiosity, when you're working on the horse, there's you need a very, you need a, you need a table that can hold that weight. So you do lay down the horse. No, I'm kidding, Nikki. <laughs> I was thinking you had some sort of table that would lift it up, like you would somehow lift the horse. <laughs> no, when you, when you started with that question, I was like, boy, am I going to really? <laughs> hey, no, I so there you are. people, they, they'll do anything. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a specialized. No, you, well, the horse, is the, one, the horse is the one that you need to. So there, so you hit on it, right? I mean, with the dog, you can, you can, uh, or a cat. I don't work with cats that much, but with the dog, you can lie them down, and and work with them. But with a the horse, they're standing up through the entire through the entire thing. And so, your what we the anthropomorphisms that we use in how we describe receiving work and what we feel like doesn't doesn't work with the with the horse. Not you know, it's not a hundred percent inaccurate, but it's it's not it's it's so inaccurate that it's worth. It's, you might as well just throw it away. And so people will say the horse feels good. It's you know it's closing its eyes. It's doing these things, and I don't I don't look for that. I look for structural changes. And then when do you see those changes? So how do you create that aha moment of the you know the equivalence of the human stepping off the table on into gravity? And with the horse, which has been in gravity the entire time, is to actually get them to move. And so there's there's where the issue is, is with the owner or the, the human, the guardian that's brought you in to, to do the work. Um, can they actually see the change in the horse? Right? And a lot of times what they're going to do is, you know, if they're taking riding lessons, they've got a riding instructor you know, who's saying, call get some work done with this horse blah 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 and they're going to wait to see if that person sees it right so that's why i give them a, i give a week for people i've never been asked for the money back and i mean it could be that people are, are doesn't mean that everybody's satisfied because there are times when people don't um don't call for a second session one of the things like for me one of the reasons i don't always love working with children is because the the parent wants it, the child doesn't necessarily want it. But like you were saying with the horse, you can't really have that conversation. But have you had times when you've worked with horses where it's felt like eh, this, this work won't land because the horse isn't in the mood or doesn't want it or? No, no, I, I, I get, so I have the same child parent 
thing with you. And, and I have a requirement that parents, you know, and a, and a guardian has to be in the room if they're under 18. Um, and it's, it's really distracting. I don't think that horses have, uh, or animals have that kind of um, attitude about things. They don't, you know, they don't know what it is that you're providing. For all they know, you're going to provide them with a bucket of grain. I mean, that's not, so it's not like they're not wanting to do something, being rebellious against their the, the other person. They they will. Um, it's it's really different. It's really different when you're when you're working with, with a human. Unless you cue them to move, right? Like you know do a tracking or something, put it where you, where it belongs and call for a movement, you know, the old Dr. Rolf instruction. Um, they don't, I mean, and if they do, I don't know if, if you, have you ever gone to a, a massage and said, yeah, baby, give me that. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, you know, you see that with a horse and then sort of the owner might say, Oh, they don't like what you're doing. I, I have a, uh, you know, I don't know if this is going to be public now, but so I generally try and separate myself and the, and the horse from the person who called me as quickly as I can, unless I deter, unless I know them and they're really good horse people. Um, so I'll have them on the outside of a stall where they can talk to me if they want, but the horse and I are on the inside, especially if it's a stall. I don't want, I don't want a lot of, people, you know, number of people in there because the horse could react negatively and, or, or in a round pen, it's rare that I'll have them hold the, you know, the lead line. I mean, like never. Then people, it's, it's not, uh, you have to go into a different space and talking is something I do with my human clients, but I don't talk to the, I don't talk to horses in that, you know, in the same way I do with a human. So what Sometimes I do in the morning just to joke around. Excuse me? So what is the language of, of speaking with a horse? Like The horses are... Go ahead. Well, just from my... With talking to horse people and, and just my personal experience is that there is this belief that horses have this kind of higher sense of animal being that that there's something very intuitive about them that they're really smart they pick up an animal or a human energy and is is that true <laughs> <laughs> now, let me see i get to choose whether or not it's true <laughs> um <clears throat> i think that you know, you know the, the, you've thrown it out a couple of times here, but the term anthropomorphism, right? It's the the app, the uh, putting human characteristics onto an animal, and then there is the term zoomorphism, which most people don't do. And so, on the opposite side of the coin, are horses, right? Animals who think you know what they're talking about. And so where we have to be is, is somewhere in between. We don't want to be anthropomorphic. I don't, I don't think that horses have emotions like we do, but I do think they have emotions. I know that they, I know this for a fact. Um, we call it, you know, being buddied up. If I take 
my two horses, which Nikki, you, you know, you've seen them. So if I take Dawn out and put her in a pasture where the, my other horse, Ziggy, can't see her, and I think I'm going to take Ziggy out after that, um, it's a disaster because he's freaking out. Where's Dawn? And she has a habit of just running off. So now he can't see her and he thinks that he's been left. And so he's not a, an easy animal to, 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 you know, manage when that happens. So I'll take them both out and I have to work through obstacles and things. And so they, they do have attachments. They do care about each other, not in the same way that we care about each other. And I, you know, I just can, I'll just leave it there. I don't know what the way is that they care about each other, but I don't think it's the same way that, that we care about each other. Um, you know, Ziggy's a gelding and Dawn, Dawn is a, you know, is a mare and intact. And so she goes into heat and it's, it's hilarious to watch her, you know, cuddling up to him when she's in heat saying, Hey, big guy, you know, it's time to have some fun. And he's like, <laughs> female women haters club. You know, he's like spanky. In the... So what do horses do? Horses are prey animals. They, they're, they can see, you know, they have a 270 degree visual acuity. So they can see up until about that um, you know, 90 degrees behind them, which is where, unfortunately, is where a rider sits. Um, right? They, they don't articulate a lot. I mean, my Ziggy, when he sees me, so I, I, I can see from my house, from my bedroom window down to where my barn is and, and what's happening in my, uh, in that South pasture. And so I'll get up in the, at six o'clock in the morning, I might look out the window from my bed and just look out and see that nobody's out in the pasture. And by six thirty, quarter to seven, Dawn has come out of the barn and is standing there waiting to see, you know, just waiting. And then I'll get up and I know the fact that she'll look up at me and I go, how, how can she see me? <laughs> but she knows that I'm there. So I, how does that, how did that happen? Um, we can, you know, I'll never, I'll never know if she saw me, right? but I, it happens enough that I think, so I just fantasize that that's what happens. Um, if I come down to the barn and I'm stressed out, they're going to pick that up and they're going to pick it up as prey animals. They're not going to, right. They're not going to pick it up into some other empathy. They're going to pick it up and how do I survive? And so the way a herd survives is that they communicate threat through their body language. So when we're stressed out, we have a body language of stress. And when a horse says, I'm going to show you some respect as a herd mate and assume that you know what you're talking about from your body language. Is this making sense? Oh, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to look for the threat. So then, what does a horse do to find a threat? What's the you know, well? You've got this long neck, and all of your sensory apparatus is on on your neck, right at the at the head. So you're going to get your ears up and your eyes up, and you can see you know take a look around. And so while you're stressed and they're going, I don't see anything that's stressing you out. Their movement of their head like that might have stressed you out. Then they might get to the point where they go, you know, I'm freaking out because I can't, as I trust you, 
I can't tell what you're looking. I can't see what you're worried about. So I'm going to assume that you're accurate. And what I'm going to do is prepare to be attacked from where I can't see things. Well, in, in evolution, the animals that did pin their ears back protected the atlanto-occipital joint, right? And if you're, if you're a lion or a tiger or a bear or a cowboy, <laughs> the place that you're going to land on a horse is not in front, but it's in the back, right? And so they pin their ears as a protection mechanism because something is a reflex, it's not, a, it's not aggressive. But then we throw our anthropomorphism into it and say, that horse is being aggressive. Be careful. It's pinned its ears. I mean, I have rabbits out here to pin their ears all the time when they see me. They're not, they're not threatening me. So how does a horse communicate? They communicate through body language. And they're pretty unforgiving with each other because it's, it's all about survival. And so you may see a horse kick another horse and it's more of a, like, you know, there's the story of uh, Naropa, you know, Naropa University. Um, Naropa's teacher, his guru was Talopa. And uh, Naropa wasn't getting it. And Talopa took off his sandal, which in India is not a, and slaps Naropa across the face to wake him up. And which was from a teacher to a student, right? Wake up, you're missing the point is a good thing. Right, but in, in in it's but if you're an Indian culture, you know you just took something off your feet and smacked this guy across the face with it. It's a huge insult, and so that's what horses horses are looking at surviving. And so we think that that the herd, the alpha, if you will, of the herd is um, going to be this the bully, and it's not true. It's the one who's who actually in, in most of the horse herds it's the it's a female who's the leader of the herd and then there's a stallion who has the most awareness but also has the most discriminating awareness and so they can tell the difference between a plastic bag if you will dr going across the pasture and a um you know a mountain lion coming to take a fall does that make sense so it's a different it's a different world. So horse body language is very important, and and for us to keep our body language neutral is also very important. And breathing is is one of the big things to do that. I, I mean, to con that contributes to that. It's just staying and staying present, staying present, staying present. So then it does give <laughs> truth to then if there's a a rider like myself who you know, got pressured into going to a horseback riding. So if there's somebody on your, on your back, right. That's not comfortable. My breathing's short, anxious, the horse might right. pick that up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially if it's not, your, if, you know, and if it's not your horse, most definitely. So you're not going to gain their respect. And if you, if it is your horse and you're still like that, then you need to find another, you know, another hobby or go take <laughs> lessons. I've decided so, I'm not getting peer pressured into horse riding anymore. No, I mean, you know, so, so people say, ask me, um, you know, they still say like the best thing you can do for a horse is to, is to, you know, rough the rider. And I say the best thing you can do for the horse is to have the rider take riding lessons. I mean, to learn to actually be a horse person. And, and that's the most satisfying people to work with. 
for me or the people that, you know, I know when they get on, you know, no, no offense, but you go out and you see some, you know, some guy who's 500 pounds or let's say 400 pounds and they're going to get on a, a horse that's, uh, you know, 800 or 1,000 pounds and they can't balance themselves or 40% body fat or something. The best thing for the animals, not to rolf the owner, but it's to the rider is to you know, have them start taking CrossFit <laughs> and getting into shape and then learning how to ride. And so it's really important that that's, if you're going to ride a horse to learn how to ride a horse, you know, to be an, to be an equestrian. And if you're going to be a horse person, then that's a, you know, that's a different story. So like I'm, a, I, you know, I haven't been on a horse in, I know for a fact in two years cause I can't, but longer than that, But when you're working with professional horse people, you know, equestrians or trainers, what have you, it's, it's really a, it's really a lot of fun. Do you, do you know, are there any, and, and forgive my not knowing the correct terms, whatever the horse races are, the Kentucky Derby, I think is like, yeah. yeah. Do any of the big name horses get, get rolfing done on them or i doubt it i doubt it. i mean I, I i the last class i taught was in um lexington kentucky and there you know those people lexington's plan is kind of is, is horse country and uh you know it's thoroughbred mostly thoroughbreds the the racing industry is is about money and you know breeding and ranching they call them farms there we call them ranches here um is about money it's not it's not about um they love the sport but there are a lot of horses who go through um go through there and and don't ever make it right and they're they're the ones i mean they might be getting ridden (laughs) by the guys who you know who lead the horses on the track it's just like saying, you know, the NBA, right? It's people make it into the NBA uh, or the NFL, uh, you know, if they can make the owners money, if they can make the team, if the team is going to help the team win. Right. So if you can show, if you can show that um, you're going to help the horse, Mm -hmm. I, I did a class in, uh, my the first time I went to, to Vienna, it, it was all, I did two classes. I did a, an equine class and a canine class back to back. It was for, uh, the international association of veterinary acupuncturists and chiropractors. And we were on a racetrack and the people on the track, you know, these were a bunch of veterinarians who worked with these, the, the track horses and they were, they were trotters. So they carried, you know, they had a sulky behind them. You know what I'm talking about? Not they had a rider. It was in a wa- they had a rider in a wagon. It wasn't riding on top of the horse. And um, the, you know, it got pretty contentious because the uh, the the owners of the horses wanted me to work with their horses. And luckily, in, instead of the veterinarians who were my students, who I wanted to work so I could watch them work. And Susan was the one who picked up on it. She's going, have you noticed that they've started calling you hair professor? <laughs> I'm like, what? 
<laughs> so the vet would come over and say something, and they go, "No, no, hair professor, hair professor." <laughs> so they they saw the changes in their animals, but you know, it's it could happen if somebody wanted to invest in that. If somebody wanted to take the time and and learned, but you better know what you're doing, mm. and and you need to know horses because these guys are not, you know. If you're saying I'm going to help your horse win, I, I had a guy trained with me once, and he 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 had um, trotters. And so, and I said something like, "Well, the stride length, yada yada yada." We were talking on the phone, and he goes, "I don't care about that. All I care about is a nose." And I'm thinking to myself, "Damn, we don't do nose work." I said the nose. <laughs> he goes, "Yeah, all my horses lose by a nose. So, if you can make their noses longer, <laughs> anyway." So you don't do the nose work on the horses. We do not, not, not like we do. I don't. I don't do that with humans anymore either. But I do. We do work on it, making sure it's soft, just the the nostrils. But I don't. There's no going up into the into the nose. I've seen too many. You know. Yeah. I don't think I've had my fingers in someone's nose other than my own. But why did you? Out of curiosity, why did you stop? Uh, I, I know it's somewhat controversial, a little bit in the, I mean, not controversial, but some people do and some don't. Why did you stop with humans going in the nose? Um, primarily because I didn't think I was, the cost benefit was there. The cost not being that, you know, you're paying me money, the cost being that I might screw something up. And so I don't have a, I don't have a disrespect for people who do that. Um, you know, but you won't come into my my practice and see a bunch of finger cots and you know, KY jelly. I did find some in the in my garage the other day. <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, yeah. I don't. I just it's more about me. It's not. It's not that I don't think it's efficacious. Somebody did a um, a cadaver nose work once. I think it was Jeff Lynn and. Uh, it wasn't pretty, so, but that's a cadaver. So, yeah. But with the, with an equine, I don't think you need to um, work with it. You can, you know, I can work with the ethmoid and the sphenoid outside. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not as familiar with the um, the anatomy of a horse. Well, that's what that was a uh, humans. Yeah. <laughs> it's not any. It's not different. <laughs> um. So, Jim, you you have an interesting journey with structural integration, rolfing, with first being attracted to really do it with horses versus people, but then you you opened your heart to people, and then went to another beast of the crossfitters <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah crossfit is uh yeah crossfit saved my life so i'm a i'm a very very big fan of crossfit you know talk about crossfit another time but we didn't talk about um canines because there's a difference so jim tell me about Canine in Ralphie. Well, I have. I mean, this could, this may be an interesting story. I could share what if it's useful to link into when we were talking about 
animals having their 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 sense of danger. I can share a little bit of a story that I worked with our dog trainer around my dog, who, as you heard, um, he acts like he's gonna like jump out the window and attack anybody who's coming to our door. He's part Roddy and Lab. So Jim, I think when you're talking about the horse picking up cues of danger, I can relate that to an experience I had with my dog, who is a rescued dog that was abandoned and was left to die with Parvo. Um, We rescued him, and he's part Lab Roddy. And great dog. Definitely has a sense to protect like a Rottweiler, but definitely has the goofiness of a lab. But anytime anybody comes to our door, he literally attacks the the door and the window as if he wants to like kill the person who's coming to, to our house. And so with two young kids at home, I wanted to try to curb this behavior a little bit just to be able to receive a package without having to like keep my dog back and so I had asked our dog trainer to come and work with me about this but I was conflicted because I also really like the sense that he's very protective and so I was like I don't want to train him out of it and we opened up to a really interesting conversation because she was talking about well this is kind of who he is he's hardwired that way and if you're stressed so clearly you're not going to put off stressful signals when the FedEx guy is coming, but if you actually feel like you're endangered, Bacon, the dog's name's Bacon, is he's going to pick up on that. He's going to want to protect you no matter what. So even so much, he could be super well trained, but if he's picking up on your the hormones of the stress puts out, everything in his nature is going to want to drive to protect you, and it's going to really you can't really train that out of him. Do you have any feelings around that, considering the... Yeah, I think to relate it back to, you know, a horse and then come back to the dog. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, I I worked as a dog handler for a professional hunting guide. And the dogs we used for hunting were plot hounds. It's a, a German breed. And, um, you know, they we hunted bear and, and boar, wild boar. But... So dogs are a predator and pretty much a pure, almost a pure predator, but they're also a, um, I don't want to say they're a human creation. So a Rottweiler and a Labrador are, you know, they're not, (laughs) they're our creation. And that's a pretty, that's an interesting mix. I like, I like Roddy's and and Poodle's better uh, as a, as a protector. But, you know, you get that Rottweiler, that, that poodle bark and that Rottweiler body, and it's really scares the cow out of the mailman. But I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> so so you've got a, a prey animal versus a horse, which is a, um, a prey, I mean, excuse me, a prey animal, which is the horse, and a predator, which is the dog. And, and where they are on the scale, I don't think there's any pure... It's a little bit hard for a horse. If you fly a kite into my pasture, you know, there are horses that are going to run away from that. My horses are going to destroy your kite. If it lands in the pasture, they're going to go over and they're going to have a talk with it. So they're, you know, they have a little bit of predation in them, if you will. Um, 
And then there's the protection of, of the herd versus the protection of the, the pack. And obviously, you know, dogs are a pack animal and you're, you're the pack and, you know, and your boys and, and Rob. So they're protecting you. And I'm not going to say that I'm not a dog trainer. So I would, you know, the, my advice is not, not around that. Um, so they're protecting you. And if you're thinking that when we can raise our voice or we can, you know, say to them, stop doing that in a negative way, they're not going to, we need to come at it from the dog trainer view of saying, what does the, what would another dog do? How does the dog train this dog? You know, does that make sense? Like if you get kicked by a horse, you probably were signaling them something and they were saying to you, or they were signaling back to you, you better stop doing that. And pretty soon they go wake up and they just, they kick you. And so, <clears throat> so dogs are, that's what dogs are going to do. I mean, they're going to, that's, you know, Rottweilers are, <laughs> you know, Labradors are supposed to retrieve tennis balls. And Rottweilers are supposed to make the bad guys feel like they shouldn't be around you, and so that's an interesting combination. It should you would hope it would blend, you know blend out, but maybe you got more Rotty than you did Labrador. Um, I don't know what the story is on if they were purposely bred together. It doesn't sound like it. I mean, he was banded <laughs> in a in an apartment right. complex. Um, and, but, he but I'm also, just saying that that. That's a, that's an interest. I mean, that's, that's what you've got. Right. Yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the, we all can relate to that because none of us are purebreds. So, so, so the Rottweiler, you might have more Rottweiler protection than you do Labrador play. Like my, 100%. my, yeah, my last dog who's in the, my canine videos and stuff is uh, Jake and he was pure Labrador. I mean, he, he's like, uh, he, he would, when he was a puppy, I'd look for him in the pasture and he'd be laying in the ditch, just, you know, laying there in the water. You know, you go, what are you doing, man? You, you should be afraid of water. But Jake was, everybody's my buddy. And the coyotes would come at night and the coyotes learned to bark. And she oh, come on, Jake, instead of howling, they'd be roof, 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 roof in the pasture. And Jake would try and go out and play with them. And, you know, where your Roddy would be like, yeah, I'll go out there and kick some butt. <laughs> it's a different, la it's a different Labrador. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. The, my, so you mentioned the video. Is the video, the dog video, is it a Rolfing dog or a structural integration dog video? Right. Yeah, I can't remember what I called it. I think I was very sensitive to calling what, I, what I, my work Rolfing. And so I think the dog one, actually it's on, there's a YouTube, a couple of them on YouTube. Um, it's called uh, canine myofascial massage or some, some, something like that. But yeah. Well, I'll look for that and link it into the, the description of the, of this podcast. Yeah, if you want, I can, I can find them. I can find them and send them to you if you want. Yeah. Be interesting. Yeah. So what, yeah, what led you down the, into getting to dogs? Um, actually, it was a, f so I've been a dog person longer than I was a horse person, I guess. And, uh, but I never had any intention of, of becoming a dog rolfer, if you will, versus wanting to work with horses. But a friend of ours 
had a, a great Dane that um, became a wobbler. Are you familiar with that syndrome? So the um, quadrupeds have like two major plexi and I haven't looked to see if humans have it, but they have one up in the, in the thoracic. So it's kind of an amplifier for the nervous system and then one in the lumbars. And so when big breed dogs um, and horses as well, when they, when they grow too thick, too quickly, the nervous system isn't able to um, keep up with that. And so this, you know, I, I have a, a picture that I got from my friend in Lexington, Kentucky. It's on the, the Rolf group on Facebook. That I just threw up there to see if people wanted to comment on it. Um, but anyway, so what happens is the, the um, nervous system that can't communicate, the brain doesn't communicate well enough with the rear end, if you will. And then the, the animal looks like it's not able to coordinate itself. And so when you, you get this in big breeds and you get this in growth spurts and, and humans as well. And so this dog would walk around the corner and bump into like, you know, like going into a one from one room to another through a doorway and bump into the wall and fall over because it couldn't, it couldn't coordinate. Um, it was, it was like it was drunk. So they call that wobbling drunk the the veterinary um procedure for it is very expensive and not not you know not that efficacious and so these were people who are longtime friends of ours especially my my wife susan's and they asked me if i could come over and work with the dog and up until that was the first dog i had worked with it's so a, it's i went a great, in a great dog to transition from horses to dogs is a great day you're a great day and yeah, you don't have to go that far down <laughs> <laughs> what was funny though is that at the time i uh i had this habit of eating um well you know that that chinese restaurant that's over by dugabi yeah china gourmet yeah china, that was one of my favorites and so i went there and had um had like sesame wings or something and with a friend of mine and, I, and I'm watching, you know, we're talking and I said, Oh crap, I'm supposed to go see this dog. And the, the dog was over in somewhere in North Boulder, right, like right up the street. And, uh, I didn't wash my hands. <laughs> so I go in <laughs> to see the dog. And the first thing the dog does is like try and take a piece of chicken out of my hand. <laughs> and the, the owners, well, maybe he doesn't like you. <laughs> Maybe he's afraid. <laughs> so, anyway, so I was able to help the dog. And once I was able to help that dog, I said, well, why don't I start looking at canine anatomy and canine biomechanics and see what, you know, what we can do. So the five sessions I have for uh, equines is different than the, than the five sessions for canines. They're not completely. It's just, you know, it's just like it's three here and four here and five. You know, it's just there's five of them, but they're one and two are pretty much the same, but you just – what are you trying to do? And the, the difference with um, between horses and dogs from a practice standpoint is that the you know, canines people are very attached to. They're more of your family than, you know, like a cat. You know, I'm a, my cat's like my dog, um, whereas the horses live in, a, in the barn, even though we're here with them. A lot of people pay money for their horses to be someplace else. You know, like they wish they could do with their kids, I guess. Maybe their husbands. Um, and some do. Right. <laughs> but uh, so, 
you want to, you, to me, it's, there's a, there's a thing about being, you know, having a personal integrity of not, you know, you can make a lot of money work taking money from people who love animals. They're, you know, and not provide them with anything. So, you know, when they say to me, well, what do you, I say, what do you, what do you think? And I go, well, what do you see? And I go, I'm paid to see good stuff. My boss would fire me if I told you it was not, I didn't see a change. I mean, but so with dogs, dogs are also predators. And so the time you can work with them is about, about 30 minutes. And that that's from the time that they've got, you know, they're under the control of the, of the um, guardian and to the time that you're, you know, you're letting them go. And with horses, it's about an hour and they're, they're like, they have a more prey animals have a better ability to concentrate and to, you know, stay aware. Whereas a predator, you know, unless there's something that's going to eat them, they're pretty much out there to eat other things. So the higher you are on the food chain, if you will, um, the more, the less aware you have to be of your surroundings. Cats and dogs sleep a lot. Horses sleep like four hours a day. I'm just thinking of um, for both horses and dogs, right? Part of the, the integration piece is the, the sacrum and, uh, and neck work at the, at the end. And do you, do you bring that in session hmm? of a raw of a human session of a human session right a human session you know you generally end with you know a pelvic lift a neck work and or back work depending on the session uh, do you bring that into the the quadruped work or yeah so the so the neck the neck the neck the neck every session the neck and and every session, um, you know, a I'm I'm kind of an old style rolfer, I guess, in that the you know, the long long stroke down the back elbow with the with the horse, not with the dog. Um, you know, so you're going to go from the from the withers or from the shoulder, uh, just um, caudal uh, to the shoulders down to the to the rear. And then there is a session, excuse me? I was going to say, I bet they love that. Um, I I think that's anthropomorphic. (laughs) (laughs) I get paid either way. Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, and there's there's differentiations as we know, right? So being able to read what does, which direction does that tissue need to go just by how the tissue is presenting. Like, are you going to take tissue away from the spine and, and towards this or towards the spine? Um, are you gathering or spreading things like that? But generally that's the, but the head and neck and that, that last couple of strokes is, is you know, just pretty quick. Um, but the head and the neck, not the head so much. So I always start off in the Atlas and there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of nerve endings there and allows you to actually make friends with the horse you know, get, get an idea where the horse is going. Um, I don't always do that with the canines are, you know, you can't say dog. Right. So if you're saying, you know, horses, do you work with miniature horses and ponies? And, you know, not really. I mean, horses are, there's breeds and breeds have some characteristics, 
but they're not as it's not like the it's not like the canine world you know, from chihuahuas to great danes and rottweilers and rottweiler labradors and you know there's just generally in the horse world it's it's very rare for a, a, a you know, for a mare um, or for a stallion to jump a fence and start breeding in the neighborhood <laughs> You know, and you don't have litters. And like, I mean, I had two dogs. And the, of the last three dogs we had, one was a purebred lab, and the two were litter. The other two were litter mates, and you could not tell that they were from the same. They definitely weren't from the same father. And we know they were from the same mother, just because <laughs> that's the way things are. But they definitely had, you know, Heinz fifty-seven. Yeah, so. <laughs> More more people were donating, or more dogs were donating. So, but yeah. Well, and then cats cats are like you know, just scratch their stomach. So then there's the thing. There's a bias. There's a bias on my part. Like with horses, it's a performance thing, and it's very rare. So if, if Nikki were to bring your dog the next time you come out, it'd be great to take some video of him. <laughs> I mean, he can run around up here. Oh my God, I don't know what would the horses do. But Bacon was uh, left alone. They might put him in his place, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. not going to be afraid of your dog. <laughs> It'd be fun to, for me just to see, uh, get some video of how he's walking and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a Zoom class on, on evolution of movement. Every okay. time I, go, I see my horse, I can't get my horses to walk for me. <laughs> it's like, would you move so I get some video? And they're like, no. <laughs> and so, well, I know we are taking a lot of your precious time. You have a lot going on. Definitely have you on again to talk about CrossFit and roping. And what I would share is that I get people who um, you know who are rolfers and they, especially dog owners, and they'll they'll say. Um, can you come see my dog or blah, blah, blah. And, and when I tell them, you know, why don't you just work with them? They, they say that they don't know, they don't know how. And I would just encourage people to go out and learn your own, on your own. Right. I mean, if you're, there's a difference between, so f- like people say to me, do you certify? I don't certify you in anything. If you come train with me and most of the training is, um, it's kind of like this. It's a, it's a conversation and let's see what we, you can't have, you can't cover all the possibilities of what you're going to see with a, with an animal. And so you can just cover the general principles. So a lecture is general principles. And then we go work with the animals and we work with, with ever presents itself. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of people who don't have the confidence and when I, I've been doing this for 26 years now, and that's the only difference, I would say that that's the biggest difference between myself and someone else is that uh, I think I know what I'm doing. And that's just a little, and you may not think you know what you're doing, right? And so you just got to change that front end of the thing. Doing is the same. You just got to change that do you know or not and be open to you know 
to looking at what you're what you're about. So I take, you know, my process was to was to try and you know, document what I was thinking I was going to do, what I thought the result was going to be, and write it down, take mm-hmm. photographs, make videos for a year. That's what I did. I had, you know, my cost was you wrote a check. You wrote a check to a charity of your choice, handed it to me for my fee, and I had uh, video rights to your, you know, the work I did with your animal, video and photographs. And I, I remember I, I told a story to some people the other day about there was a horse, Skippy, um, who, a veterinarian that I have a lot of respect for, um, who used to help me teach classes, and it was my vet had suggested that the person should put Skippy down, um, you know, should, should euthanize this, this horse. And um, the person didn't want to do that. So they, they uh, called me out and I said, you know, I'll work with Skippy, but I don't think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to help the horse. And so I don't feel like I should take your money, but what I will do is take the photo and video rights. And so blah, blah, blah. I worked with Skippy about two or three times. That's how I found, I didn't, I forgot I had a YouTube channel <laughs> and I was, I was looking for something. I was looking for a Skippy video cause I know there's one out there someplace. And, uh, so <clears throat> we did the Skippy long story short, Skippy went on to become a really, um, high end reigning horse, which is not easy, easy work. And, the uh, the veterinarian wanted to take a picture of Skippy for something, and uh, the owner said, "Oh, well, you're going to have to contact Jim because he owns the video and photo rights to the source." So. <laughs> so just you know, just try and you know, be be conscientious. Like you know, I know you two are, but there are a lot. There are so many people out there who just don't seem to have the confidence mm. that they need. And I was lucky that. I had, you know, Tom Myers willing to tell me, you know, you figured it out. And that, that meant so much to me because I'm not that confident. Thank, thank you, Jim. It's been great. We always uh, really enjoy talking with you. You're, uh, you're, you're just a great guy. Uh, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. <laughs> All righty. Thank you, guys. Right, I appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Enjoy yourselves. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Interpresence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more of Jim at jimtherolfer.com. Please feel free to leave us positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other podcast aggregators. And please share with people whom you feel these episodes may be of interest. Nikki and I do this for all of you out there, and we hope that we're making a difference in your worlds. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at a Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.